I think most anthropologists would like to divide men into two classifications. One, those in which culture is sufficient, and those in which culture is insufficient. Now, this does not mean that the man of beginning uh, must be made to inquire into what would be sufficient for the culture of the man of the The question always is, is it sufficient for the man of beginning? Also, is the culture of the American citizen sufficient for the needs of the American citizen? Therefore, we divide now into two groups, cultured and uncultured. The uncultured is in the individual who lives below the threshold of his own needs, culturally speaking. The cultured person is one who lives on the threshold of his own needs. There is only this division in nature. All other divisions are purely arbitrary and are purely the result of a psychology of dominance. They become part of what might be psychologically termed the attitude of racial arrogance. But all nature combines against it and tells us that the most precious gift that nature can bestow, which is orderly survival, is bestowed for the individual who is culturally sufficient to his own needs and is a platform upon which he stands. On this basis, then, the development of culture becomes a process of bringing into action what might be termed the great tribal, racial, national conviction. Now, in primitive people, this conviction is largely embodied in myth, legends, lore, and ritual, which will be primarily the continuance of certain religious concepts. These concepts being primarily intended for one purpose only, and that is the preservation of the power of the collective culture. This is what it is all aimed at. Out of this then we come to the realization that man's oldest instrument of culture has been his religion, in some form or in whatever division or policy or way of life that he has made. Up to the present time, we have noticed uh, that many people have a religion which has strongly outdistanced them in one direction or another. Most individuals are either trying to live up to it or are trying to live down to it. When you outgrow a belief and try to hold on to it, you must live down to it. When your belief is beyond your comprehension, you have to try to live up to it. Both of these procedures are painful. Therefore, both of these procedures are essentially non-cultural. That is another point in connection with culture. Culture is not man aiming at his impossible. Culture is not man living tomorrow, nor is it man living yesterday. It is man living well today, with the certainty that upon the foundation of today being a satisfactory experience in the fullest sense of the word, uh, yesterday can be gradually forgotten and tomorrow will be no problem when it comes. But the great difficulty with non-culture is the individual who is living out of the now. And as he lives out of the now, he awakens a series of mechanisms within himself. Among these mechanisms are his guilty practices which can be very powerful to him and are the principal causes of his relation. All these problems involve more of culture than of psychology, although the two problems very closely relate together. To the anthropologist, psychology as a problem science, a science of the human problem, is actually as derived from a grand era relating to anthropology. You would expect, of course, the anthropologist to put his ideas first, as the science does. But he has a certain point. Namely, that the psychological problem of man arises from his lack of anthropological knowledge. That the uh, individual trying to be what he is not is the fourth trouble. And he will continue to do this and have his trouble until he discovers what he is and lives accordingly. This kind of, uh, of reasoning is essentially very simple. Simple culture, as experienced among so-called natural people, simple culture is not efficient 
and only of the values with which we are normally concerned. Simple culture is not unmoral, nor is it immoral. Simple culture probably has the greatest morality of all, because it is completely honest. Uh, simple culture is not restrictive. It is not dogmatic. It is not phenomenal. Simple culture is essentially honest, because it has discovered what we do not know, that honesty is the only way in which individuals can live together. Everything else is an illusion, and a delusion, leading only to us. So we have what might be termed basic ethics arising from anthropological social sources. Man's greatest fear of things that are along with them, and those who have achieved this harmoniously have learned certain essential lessons, and these essential lessons form culture. Culture is the result of the experience of man with man, the inevitable contact of relationships. These cultural facts are far more evident to so-called primitive man than they are to us, because under our way of life, we have deluged our living with so many artificial considerations that we are no longer able to deal directly with any problem. The result of this, our culture is continuously collected. And uh, the proof of the breaking down of culture is the failure of the human social unit to hold together. It is the inability of the individual to so live that the essential values of this culture remain healthy. The moment they become un un unhealthy, he is dangerous not only his own survival, but the survival of his entire being. So here in anthropology we have this important thought, namely that all estimation of culture is non-competitive. It is absolutely based upon essential values. And this, in turn, is based upon archaic values. If you go back through, for instance, your great religious systems of the world, it is astonishing how closely the ethics and morality of these faiths correspond. It is also amazing to the degree that these in turn are identical with the basic beliefs of those primitive people who have never yet emerged into the structure of great social or religious institutions. The American Indian wandering in small bands on the plains of our southwest, had just as clear an insight into essential value as is to be found in the cult of the Simeon, Moses, or Amorites. He had learned something that we do not realize, namely that culture is imposed upon man by the universe that in certain essential things men must follow or obey, that their relationships are invariably subject to certain pressures, that these pressures are not met with an adequate attitude. These pressures will destroy the cultural structure of that people. So behind all of our space lies certain simple experience discovery, made possible by the fact that we are a common creature, and that as a common creature we never have had but one religion, that as a human being we have never had but one culture, and all the differentiations upon it are comparatively superficial structures. Now we can build upon basic cultures as far as we can. And every generation we hope to build further. We hope to enrich the cultural life of man by giving him knowledge, skills, understanding, vision, insight, through the development of music and art and literature, poetry and theater. Through all these things, we hope that we shall gradually move man further and further as a cultural entity, 
in which value will be the dominant kilo of existence. But men will inevitably seek that which is valued and will cling to that above every other consideration. This, more or less, is the golden vision of culture. Yet just as surely as our language is built upon the foundation of a pattern of words which are still to be found concealed within it, and even grammar and rhetoric are indebted to the laws governing these ideas for their development in the development of modern languages, so surely man never outgrows basic culture. He merely specializes. He merely develops and unfolds its research. We say that no one knows what is lost within man. That there may be a million times more in him than we have ever found. Yet whatever is in him is in him because of the total nature of himself. The same is true of culture. Culture as we know it today is assuredly by no means complete. And the anthropologist who likes to think in these terms would like to view the hope, rather optimistically, that a hundred thousand, half a million, or a million years from now, man will look back upon his present culture and recognize its basic imperfection, that he will have gone on beyond it. But though he may outgrow one cultural system after another, he can never change the basic elements of culture as these elements exist. Therefore, all cultures are various improvisations upon the theme culture, and never can get beyond it. No advanced culture becomes greater by rejecting old culture. It may reject what has passed for culture and never was, but anything that was ever essentially true in culture will go on to become more broader, to unfold greater potential, but a sense of culture never has to be destroyed in order that man may grow. Only false culture. It is the observation that this caution, uh, the mistaken attitude toward culture, which must be cleared away. Today, it would be our attitude that if our interpretation of culture fails, then our culture will fail. But that is not necessarily true. It might be that our, the failure of our interpretation of culture might assist us to recover a sense of culture. These points uh, are very large in the thinking of anthropology because if they have to do with the essential values. So we go to the more primitive people to find out what constitutes a sense of culture we find that these people instinctively possess attitudes. But these attitudes, they do not explain. They do not interpret. They do not claim that they are even virtues. Most of these people have a very dim attitude toward virtue and vice. They have not been indoctrinated as to the particular ways in which they can be wrong. Therefore, the thought hasn't occurred to them. These people simply have learned from the daily experience of intimate contact with life and nature, the simple rules necessary for themselves. If they follow these rules, they observe the prosperity, convenience, and security that results. If they break these rules, they observe disaster. Therefore, these rules become taboo, or become patterns, by which the community's conduct is regulated. One of the first things that men discovered was that the quickest way to die was to think about only themselves. And there's scarcely a primitive person in the world who has ever attempted to make a virtue or to justify selfishness. This has to come in at a time when the involvement of living becomes so complicated that the immediate result of a cause is not apparent. In a simple society, where cause and effect follow so closely that they cannot be misunderstood. The common fault that we practice cannot exist. It only exists with us because we can dump them into an ocean of thought. 
in which the mistakes and errors of millions of others can be stirred into our own, and we can lose sight of where responsibility rests. Therefore, we can seriously blame somebody else for our own mistakes. Primitive man cannot do it. In fact, he seldom survives to blame anybody if he makes a mistake. Therefore, his entire attitude toward life is very different. An anthropology working with these problems attempts to determine what constitutes value. We think of terms, of course, that value is provided. We know that this big weakness at a very remote time, that there is an instinct in man to survive. But we also know that this instinct was almost immediately supplemented by another one. And almost as far back as we can go in our human thinking, even among the most primitive people, we find a value above survival. And that value slowly molds itself into the concept of honor. Survival is less important than honor. Because the honorable man can live with himself, whereas the man who is not honorable cannot. Therefore, to survive at the expense of honor is to continue miserably, which itself is no reward. Primitive people then generally consider are less selfish, less arrogant, less self-centered than what we call civilized people. Because in their daily experience, they can see the mistakes of these attitudes. We cannot. This leads the anthropologist to point out that there is a basic code which we have lost sight of and which we must rediscover. And the point where it can be both easily discovered and examined is among so-called primitive people. Thus are tremendously increasing interest in them because they represent a level of value which we have so completely obscured that it is no longer acceptable to us. Now, in continuing our problem of race and language and religion, we came to a very important episode in the development of human life, and that was the gradual unfolding of what we would term spoken language in the written form. We do not actually know who invented writing. We are assuming, however, that it belongs to a gradual unfoldment from hypocritic and hieroglyphical forms of ancient law. We know that at a remote time, man began to devise symbols. But these symbols were largely diagrammatic, crudely made representations of objects. And that for a long time, we have no skill whatever in creating and saying word form. He could not put them. He could only regard them as objects. And in his effort uh, to transmit abstract ideas, he found himself from the beginning most unhappily restricted. Perhaps one of these uh, elements of this particular circumstance led to the gradual development of a psychological attitude in them. Namely, that things valuable could not be written. And things written had only a certain kind of value. Certainly we know that from the very early time, matters which had to do with spirit, with soul, with God, with the great principles of things, were never written. We also know that in those times later, when men symbolically began to associate bodies with life energy, which they did, that it was customary for them not to write these bodies, but only to have them figuratively in their own minds to be inserted in the writing by the reader himself. This was one of the peculiarities of the very early Hebrew writers. We also know uh, that the effort to bring words to life resulted in a gradual change from a hieroglyphical or pictorial form uh, to the hieratic form, and a gradual increase in language symbol. 
by making these symbols equivalent to sounds rather than to things. The natural division of these sounds, as Lambert attempts to show us in the development of his concept of the Maya language, uh, these sounds probably originally were the names of the things pictorially represented. Therefore, the sound for a picture was at least the beginning of the name of the thing for which the picture represented. It was then, however, discovered that by putting several pictures together and using their sound, other concepts which had no pictorial equivalent could be transmitted. And in Egypt, this became most commonly associated with proper names in which by placing the script in a cartoon, they were read no longer as symbols, but as syllables. This is an instruction and an example of man searching for written sounds. With the rounding of written sounds, a very interesting thing took place in the anthropology of man. He said there was nothing that was more important to man in the discovery of writing. He just loved to glamorize that magnificent event. But when we do this, we lost something. Whenever we do anything in this world, we lose something. The thing that we lost very largely was the strange acuteness of memory with which previously we had been endowed in order to perpetuate ideas. We lost the intimacy of the great storyteller. We lost the bard. We lost the ancient and valued ancestor. We could communicate his language and his thoughts only directly to other persons by speech. We began to create a new anthropological world in which knowledge was divided from people and became a matter of being recorded on stones tablets of wax, papyrus, parchment, or paper. Thus knowledge suddenly was told, like the medium on which it was placed. We lost a dimension of transmission. Perhaps that's one of the reasons why today we have an instinctive love of fear. It's because it has something to do with the living transmission of ideas. Something was sour in the development of written words. It was the living inflection. Words are not only according to their letters and their syllables, but they are according to a life moving behind the breath. And in all kinds of transmission, there is a factor of the holy breath, the breath of life carrying those words. It meant something. It meant something on a purely physical basis. It meant that the Iroquois called to the render, the transference of a spirit, rather than merely a picture. The men became more and more indebted to pictures. They became more and more conscious that ideas could be passed around in books. And they forgot that in the transmission of ideas, there was a tremendous individuality the old storyteller never told his story twice before. He told it according to the need of the hour. He told it and he made a certain emphasis according to the nature of the person who sought to instruct the inform. He made a lesson of it in every instance. And it was the lesson about the subject, rather than the subject of the script itself, that became the aura of culture relating to that thing. And the discovery of writing and the instruction of all of man's ideas to almost unchanging written form blocked the living transmission of knowledge. It blocked the individual from having this knowledge forever contemporary. If we had Plato today descending through a hundred generations of teaching, teaching only all of them. We might not know quite so much about what Plato said, 
That would probably get a little out of order in the course of time. That we would have a more living power of Plato moving into our lives, the others living in our time. We would have the opportunity to add to the original 2,500 years of constant living descent of ideas. This could be a very important question, and perhaps we will help to solve it at some degree at least by our increasing recognition of the importance of visual instruction and visual education. Perhaps our television will help us to capture something of the bars, something of the living transmission of things visible, rather than always depending upon their abstract statements, which we cannot be taken they invoke the same idea within ourselves. We cannot talk to the book. We cannot act with this question. We can only accept, constantly accept. And in this way, we lost a tremendous dimension of cultural wealth. The other question we must then call for a moment and ask is the descent of races. Now, in the philosophical system, we have, as we have noted before, the story of a descent of races, much as we might have a descent along its long stairway or ladder. We assume, for common purposes, that of our three races, that there are the two groups that we have mentioned, that the Negroes corresponds with the ancient Lemurian race, that the Mongoloids correspond to the Atlantean race, and the prophesies correspond to the Aryan race. Now this, you know, is a very interesting thing, but it got us into some trouble. One of the places where it got us into an obvious bit of trouble was in Germany during the last war. Because this idea of the descent of races had quite an effect upon Nazi psychology. And it had a very important part in terms a part to play in the development of the Nazi concept of hyper-Aryanism. It was very largely supported and substantiated by this so-called ladder of races that had been developing around metaphysical systems of thought. And uh, the principal educational leader of Germany at that time was a member of one of these esoteric groups that had taught this ladder of races and he was very convenient. It was used against the very things we would want to have it used for. But it became a very, very dangerous thing. Because it began to take a very dangerous attitude, namely the competition for racial superiority. It began to take the attitude of the latest discipline and that all other ancient races had been and had their days in the sun were disappearing, and that the world was now keeping in the keeping of the mighty Aryan force. This led to a very bad problem on the level of culture. It, it was used against itself, and uh, has brought out an evil which uh, your anthropologists have been fixed to the brain because he recognized it long before it even became a problem on a religious level at all. Namely, the difficulty of trying to determine these descents in terms of relative value. So out of it all, uh, the anthropologist has come to a conclusion. Namely, that the human problem is not essentially a matter of race. Human progress is essentially built upon an entirely different foundation, namely, the strength of a culture to induce the growth of an individual. Wherever he is placed in a cultural pattern, it is this cultural pattern that very largely determines what he will use, how fast he will grow, how bright he will be, and how so-called superior he will become that these factors are not necessarily intrinsic in the so-called racial differentiation. That the cultural factor is its effect upon 
the life of the individual inducing him to excel himself by a series of continual motions. Not to let outstrip himself to the degree that he cannot catch up, but gradually to challenge him more and more to release or reveal values within himself. Experiments have been made on a number of different levels to determine the validity of this concept. And most of these experiments have held up on the level of essential culture. So they have not necessarily held up on the level of a theme culture, such as specific forms of knowledge. Therefore, man has a common knowledge and a specific knowledge. These two may not agree. But we must not and should not assume that lack of specific knowledge is an indication of deficiency of common knowledge or the essential knowledge that knows the need to surface This essential knowledge, which also has locked within it the potential of almost every type of specialization under appropriate cultural incentives. Therefore, culture is not only this pattern, but it is a progressive, unfoldment of incentive. And the trouble has been not that the individual did not have capacity in most instances. It is that he lacked incentive. That he lacked the circumstances around him by which certain demands were made upon his own anthropological complex. Thus, for example, if he was never under a challenge, Whatever was necessary to meet such a challenge never came out of himself. This happened in the case of the Inca of Peru. These people, isolated on the Western Hemisphere in the southern part of it, never developed any adequate international cultural concept. They had no idea of anybody but themselves, because they had never seen anything or anyone except these Native groups that were not even on their level of culture at that time. The result was that a handful of Spanish and a dozen horses overthrew an empire simply because there was no way to meet the sudden impact out of experience. This type of situation simply means that within the interstate there had been a cultural specialization. And as we study their policies, we study their ethics, we study their morality, we are lost in admiration for them because they were a magnificent people. But they have never developed the ability to meet an invader. They simply did not know how to accept such a challenge. It was beyond their experience. This was essentially true also in Mexico, although perhaps not quite as complete, still very large. So that we have cultures only developing according to certain conditions. These conditions begin to bring in outside elements which we have to uh, consider. These include environment, locality, uh, isolation or proximity to other people. The culture of islands is very different from the culture of continents. Also, we will recognize that your great cultural motion have always arisen in your largest areas of land. Because in these enormous areas, you have variety of demand. You also have proximity of a variety of neighboring circumstances and conditions. Therefore, we learn as a basic principle that culture advances most rapidly in a polyglot society, inasmuch as it presents greatest talent. But this does not necessarily mean that all motion within a polyglot is culture or is advanced. Not only is culture or advanced by which advancement is actually attained on a culture level. But we do observe that uh, the great racial motion, the great religious motion, the great language motion, all begin on large land areas. Because here you have a comparatively complicated way of life only forced upon the individual. Now we will also point out that this forcing of a way of life 
of one social group become another. That's what he said. And out of this stress, there will be most trouble in society. So we might say, as the persons have said to me, that if they were all by themselves, they could get along all right. And there was a great rush in first to uh, get in trouble and still have other people around. Thus, in your development of culture, you see a primary problem in this. And this primary problem has resulted in the bloody history which we know as that of mankind. The problem of eternal conflict. Yet essentially, this conflict is non-cultural, and every factor involved in it has always known this, but has not known what to do about it. This also means that gradually your cultural motion has to reintegrate. And this is what uh, your anthropologist is hoping to see happen. He is hoping that he may not live to see that occur, but may live to see a few more symptoms of it appear. The man begins to recognize the need of a conscious reunited of his resources, no longer by arbitration or by arbitrary decision, but out of experience, which is the culture. Thus, very peace is a cultural goal, because it can only be achieved by cultural means, and it can only be achieved by the individual attaining individual maturity, which is cultural integrity. There are laws and patterns which appear about the surfaces of these fields when you investigate them, but we are trying merely to summarize certain broad features of this particular topic. And uh, therefore, taking a culture as it stands today, and taking your three great racial groups, so-called arbitrary, and your boundaries of racial variability, recognizing that all of these groups have cultural history, which may be regarded as a series of ups and downs, if it has been all the way along. Let us recognize that this cultural pattern of each of these groups has much more in it as subjective psychology than we realize. That the so-called primitive groups are really very old groups. And that the reason why we regard them as primitive is because their important discoveries were made perhaps before the dawn of history that uh, they have an amazing maturity in them. One of the most completely material human beings that I have ever known is a Navajo Indian medicine man. He was a completely material person. He had the maturity with nothing to take from him. He had the dignity of nature, not of man. He was completely lacking in all. He never needed to use words for more than one or two syllables because he knew the right one in his own language. And just as the words of Jesus seldom exceed people of it, and yet within them is more wisdom than in great books, so the simple, massive roughness of this man was a magnificent unfoldment of a true wisdom, coming from an isolated, arid region, where apparently there was no opportunity for him. But there is a very good culture that existed for ages and more. So we cannot be too hasty in assuming that this group or that group lacks culture, or lacks the capacity for culture. These people, perhaps some of them, lack the capacity to be miseducated. Because of a simple directness, because generations of involvement in a psychosis before they would be sufficiently abnormal to be happy with our way of life. But their simple values and their definition of values uh, would become a major point for us to live by. And all these things, therefore, particularly, arise out of cultural generality. And with every race and nation that's on the earth today, with a long and illustrious cultural history, 
much of which is totally unknown to our own people, much of which is culturally unrecognized by our own people. Just as sure as the culture of Greece and India is almost totally unrecognized by two-thirds of the Caucasian race. It does not mean it isn't there. Modern anthropologists are taking more and more of the attitude that it is perfectly possible to assume that every human being on earth today, arising from a heterogeneous culture, with the average person having anywhere from five to twenty-five racial trees in his system, and almost impossible that a completely pure example of any race can be found, regardless of what we believe. Let us take the Anglo-Saxon or Teutonic. There is no genealogy of any European family available today more than 1,200 years old. Beyond that, there is mystery. There is legend, and there have been some manufacturers. But actually, in fact, you do not know. You cannot say. The average individual could not get up to bed and tell you the actual racial identity of his grandparents five generations in age. He could hope he could, but he would be sure. Therefore, as these cultural things have mingled in the biological descent through the Greeks, we are in no position to say that there is any human being on the earth today other than one believes or in some way abnormal in whose nature the possibility of important cultural growth is not to be found. We cannot say that the person is good. Nor can we say honestly that any person is totally limited by the culture pattern of the dominant race with which he is now identified. Because we have no way of knowing to what degree that race has already mingled with the others, producing an anthropological capacity for culture. We have no way of knowing. And rather than to try to argue this stuff and try to uh, create a situation that at best can only be uh, objective, and upon which we can demonstrate nothing with factual sense. The modern tendency is to assume that the best thing that can happen for all is that this cultural basic pattern should be released, revealed in every possible way from the voluntary cooperation of mankind collectively to the achievement of this pattern to be encouraged in every way possible. That it is through this common encouragement and the essential value that is to be found in all things that we are going to advance ourselves more gradually. Our experiences of men like Lawrence of Arabia and others who went into comparatively remote areas, the Austrian uh, refugees who went to live in Tibet, and other people like Lascario Hermes who went over and lived for many years in Japan. Those people who go to these areas, live among them, are gradually but inevitably overwhelmed with admiration for the values in all these diversified areas. A man wrote not long ago that in his estimation, the noble standards of human conduct that he had discovered in a lifetime of wandering, he found in a small oasis in the Sahara Desert. Here was the thing we talk about being done. Well, we only talk. So the culture, from an anthropological standpoint, is the encouragement of recognition. The importance of building upon achievement. And the recognizing achievement from some place. In as achievement arises almost always from the polygraph, which has itself biologically transcended race. Achievement arises nearly always in 
of scenes in which there have been many meanings, thus creating apparently an important internal biological challenge to ideas. These points then cause us to say this, that there is all probability for much to support the idea, and that racism did appear as the epithetical we have liked to assume and as we have reasonable Yet we should appear in some time as a secret, and that in this secret, which is undoubtedly an archetypal motion into manifestation, in which the individualization, which is present everywhere in the universe, took over its proper manifestation in the productive mind, that these races do the world in a pattern, in a secret. But let us also realize that races, once the racial structure is established as a base, races were born out of races. Therefore, that races in every instance, according to the Hindu esoteric tradition, were the result of specialized groups arising in a previous race, possessing apparently those advanced cultural instincts by means of which a new dispensation or a new way of life became proper and reasonable. That such a thing may have occurred, and probably did occur, it seems to be no, even no good anthropological reason to doubt that such could happen. And there has been no essentially better explanation of it. But this also tells us of something that even the materialist is inclined to admit. Namely, that when progeny arises within families or within race, this progeny always carries with it an essential element from its own ancestry. That if we wish to follow the scientific idea of natural salvation, and we do not wish to achieve immortality for man. I'm not saying that we should do this, but I'm saying if we wish to take the scientific way, then the answer to science officers is that the father lives in his son, and that this son in turn lives in his son, and that all continuance is through the continuance of the racial structure. If we wish to assume this, and perhaps physically there is some ground for it, although metaphysically it is not a sufficient explanation. We then realize that ancient races never died. They vanished into their own descendants in each case. If, therefore, a first race finally vanished from the earth, it was because it was a thought, because its essential life culture was transmitted to another. Gradually, the forms may have disappeared, but the life of the world never dies. The life of culture never dies, because culture is an unbroken tradition. But culture is always, in some way, carried by the bloodstream. Therefore, if there are races that we wouldn't even like to call friends anymore, some were most cannibal at an indifferent time, let us remember that actually, that ancient state of affairs did not cease. It simply unfolded. As one ancient Indian fable says, you look at the five-year-old child and you say, where is the man? And you look at the man and you say, where is the five-year-old child? The man looks very different from the five-year-old child, but the five-year-old child did not disappear to make way to the man. The five-year-old child is still in that but it has grown and developed beyond. It was not clear that a man might come. It was rather unfolded that the man might appear who was always there. Therefore, it's the first race, the Lemurian, seemingly uh, disappeared or became exceedingly decimated. It is simply because its more advanced cultural unit simply moved into it. A new race will form and continue. If it is gradually reassumed, uh, the Caucasian race, or taken dominance over the Atlantean or Mongolian race, the matter which, by the way, is a little endless to speak of the matter. 
Because at the present time, we are wondering just exactly what is the relationship between the Caucasian race and a vastly numerical overwhelming Mongolian race. Perhaps these people didn't have their place in the sun a million years ago and vanished forever. Perhaps they're going to show up again. Perhaps there are wisdom, there's wisdom in the words of scripture that the first shall be last. In any event, whatever moves into what we might term some higher order of cultural availability, or intellectual availability, or emotional availability, carries within it always that which went before. Just as sure as when our time comes to peace and some better people to take things over, we will not speak. We will continue with them, going on to contribute to their culture all of the intrusive and innate interests which we have accumulated in our long and fabulous adventure. This is the only way in which adventure becomes meaningful. It is the adventure of the caveman and the Neanderthal man is only meaningful because it makes possible what exists now. The fact that these people struggled ages ago does not mean anything except in terms of certain basic values which uh, we have gradually come to understand or to know out of that primordial struggle. Thus the problem of the racial ascent is again one of specialization. And uh, we can think of the possibility the special types seem to be more able to accept culture than others, as we know. But that means to accept our culture. And that is where the fact comes. Some people cannot accept our culture. They never will want it. Others, we cannot accept theirs. But this no longer becomes the basis of superiority and interior, but a specialization within great cultural generalities. Regardless of what we have done, our primary goal will remain the same. Our goal is the goal of the case, namely that we want to be happy. We want to be secure. We want to be loved. We want to be understood. We want a safe world for our children. We want to know how to provide for the needs of our own children. And instinctively, we have an impulse to share with those whose needs are greater than our own. These are the basics. These have never changed. And all that we are attempting to do by two concept projects is to make these goals available, to make it possible for us to be these things that we have wanted to be from the dawn of time. The morality, ethics, philosophy, logic, all of these subjects exists only to help us to make these goals come true. And these goals, appropriate goals, are available and possible to all people. And in time, all people who are witness of that diversified experience will contribute to the ultimate and final statement of our cultural goals. Our music, our art, our literature, these things cut through all artificial social groups and bring us into a common humanity. To understand this, to serve it wisely, and to develop with understanding the solution to our own culture, these things together constitute, it seems to be, the most vital part of the subject of anthropology. And so now we'll have to stop and go on next week.